ever hear of the Young Patriots Organization or Rising Up Angry? If not, then you haven't really heard the history of the civil rights movement. Indeed, while most historians of the 1960s are content to portray poor and working class whites as at best spectators to the civil rights movement and at worst as reactionaries and racists, fact is that white participation in the movement extended far beyond the small group of white college activists and included some of the nation's most underprivileged whites joining forces with black radicals for a new social reality. Well, in their new book, Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels, and Black Power, longtime activists James Tracy and Amy Sony unearth the uh, ignored history of an important coalition, white working class radicals, and the black power movement. Based on 10 years of research and personal interviews with many movement participants, Hillbilly Nationalists couldn't be a more timely read. And the authors join me this morning. A little bit of background. Amy Sony is an activist, educator, and librarian who has worked with U.S. grassroots social justice movements for the past 17 years. She's co-founder of the National Center for Media Justice. Her first book, Revolutionary Voices, an anthology by queer and transgender youth, is banned in parts of New Jersey and Texas. I like it already. Her work has appeared in the San Francisco Bay Guardian, Alternate, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Clamor, the Oxygen Television Network, Bitch Magazine, and the Sojourner. James Tracy is a longtime social justice organizer in the San Francisco Bay Area. He is the founder of the San Francisco Community Land Trust and has been active in the Eviction Defense Network and the Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco. He's edited two activist handbooks for Manic D Press, one of which I have used in my class in the past. One is the Civil Disobedience Handbook. The other is the Military Draft Handbook, and his articles have appeared in Left Turn, Race, Poverty, and the Environment, and the Contemporary Justice Review. And uh, let us first bring James on the line. Are you with us this morning? I'm right here. Great. And let us see if we can't bring Amy on the line. Are you with us? I am. Good morning. Good morning. And you could both hear each other. Yes. Absolutely. Wonderful. You love it when everything goes wonderfully. Uh, thanks both so much for uh, for joining us this morning on Justice or Just Us, and congratulations on what is really a... Uh, everybody calls books unique, but this one really is unique. It is... Uh, a history that I think a lot of people who are familiar with the civil rights movement probably don't know this history. So uh, why don't we begin? Um, tell our listeners how you both came about this hidden history. What was the impetus for writing the book? And uh, how did you find out about working class white involvement in this part of the civil rights movement? Well, we're both community organizers, as you mentioned. Uh, I first found out about this history uh, basically because my, one of my mentors in community organizing, Malik Rahim, who was a member of the Black Panther Party, told me about them and, and told me about these groups being uh, a catalyst in his own life to reconsider some of his, uh, his own uh, preconceptions about uh, white people and uh, working class white people in general and uh, the possibilities of, of being players in the... Uh, in the larger push for social change. 
And I also learned about this history through one of my uh, mentors and my, through my own activism. And uh, you know, I think in the process of sort of looking for answers to the challenges of coalition building and multiracial organizing and how to talk about class today, I was curious about the past. And this mentor had told me about Join Community Union, Jobs or Income Now Community Union, that was started by the Students for Democratic Society, but really... Um, taken over by some of its residents um, in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago, as well as the Young Patriots. Um, And so that's where I began my research. And so how did the idea come about to write a book and tell this story? Okay. James and I uh, were each respectively working on this research, and a friend connected us. Uh, A friend at AK Press, actually, um, was when he was there, begging me a little bit to, to get the book written and get it started. Uh, but, you know, being a worker who had two sometimes more jobs, um, there wasn't a lot of time. And uh, it was he who connected me with James. James was also working on the same history. And so we put our efforts together and realized that not only was a, a book possible, but it was very necessary. It seems like a ripe topic for uh, for current times. It, it really focuses on, as I think you mentioned, the idea of coalition building. Yes. How did you how did you guys go about I mean from a, just from a from a purely academic perspective I find the book uh an amazing achievement in uh in research and in um preserving voices of of the past how did you go about researching the book it's one thing to know that that these kinds of coalitions existed and you know uh James I know you mentioned you know one of your mentors uh you know uh, being involved in the Black Black Panthers, but how do you actually go about finding the voices, finding there's a lot of archival information. Um, take our listeners through, okay, so you, you both connect, you both decide you want to document this this forgotten history and or ignored history is probably a better way of putting it. How do you go about making the connections? Yeah, so I'll let James tell some of his story, too, because we, you know, we started the research separately. But I would say we both really followed the footnotes in the few studies um, and documents that we had access to. Um, there were brief mentions of organizations or names of people. Um, we, you know, as younger activists, had to learn about some of the underground and radical publications that were um, being put out at the time, such as the movement newspaper, even Ramparts was something that I I newly learned about 10-plus years ago when we started this. Um, We noted names, and then we used our connections um, through our organizing work to find people who had been part of the history or knew people who were, and we began interviewing people that way. Many of those people then shared their personal archives with us. and we also sort of selected major uh, social movement archives um, to go visit and dig through and see what they had. And I think I think the the, the core of this group of, of this book actually is the um, the interviews. We were uh, you know, we are younger act- activists that were calling veterans of the movement up, many of which had very good reasons for not sharing their stories, and it was a long process of uh, creating trust and rapport. And uh, and really getting people to be invested in in a process of sharing their experiences, so uh, people of of this generation of uh, young younger activists could actually benefit from uh, from both their accomplishments and their mistakes. 
I think the hardest part for us was uh, really knowing when to stop. There were so many more stories to uncover and so much more research to do. I mean, an entire book could be written about any one of these organizations. But, uh, yeah, it was difficult to know when to stop and, uh, and put it out there in the world. I want to remind listeners they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We are speaking with Amy Sony and James Tracy, the authors of Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels, and Black Power. Love the title, by the way. Um, and uh, the uh, book is available uh, as a premium. We've got five copies. If listeners call in for uh, to support this program, to support this station, the number is 949-824-5824, 949-UCI-KUCI, only available on this program, and uh, a really, really interesting read. Uh, why don't we start by talking about the, the, the book itself and some of the, the, the stories and the themes uh, in the book. How do white working class whites, or I should say, how did white working class whites get uh, get involved, get tuned into um, not just the civil rights movement, because I think some of that story has been told perhaps with SDS and, and other things, but how did they get tuned into this more radical black power movement in particular? Well, in the case of the Young Patriots and Rising Up Angry, they got tuned in because there were um, conscious organizers that did not give up on those communities or write them off as hopelessly racist or reactionary that reached out to them, that respected um, both the fact that they had actual actual needs, actual economic uh, needs in their lives that needed to be, um, be addressed and addressed politically, but also uh, were there to uh, encourage people to take uh, two steps further to understand the connections between their lives and their neighbors of color and uh, their lives and, and imperialism. And I think that that's, that's really the, the main way that people got, got connected. And so just to, just to interject, tell our listeners a bit, in case they don't have um, the background, who were the Young Patriots? The Young Patriots were a group of... Um, of youth, mostly of southern descent, that lived in a place called Hillbilly Harlem or Hillbilly Heaven, depending on who you talk to, which was a neighborhood in uh, a neighborhood in Chicago, also known uh, known today as Uptown. And um, they were the the anti police brutality gr- uh, group of Join, the organization which uh, Amy mentioned, and uh, they spun off adopted uh, kind of shockingly the southern uh, the southern flag as their emblem uh, with the full blessing of their um, of their neighbors in the Black Panther Party and they uh, they attempted to organize southern whites both uh, for their economic uh, interests and against uh, against racism and the original rainbow coalitions with the Black Panthers and the young lords and they I mean it seems such a such a surprising coalition i mean particularly as you mentioned you know the young patriots adopting uh the the confederate flag and uh using slogans uh i was reading last night the 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 south shall rise again but then they added an addendum to it uh it it just seems like such dangerous terrain to uh or dangerous symbols to use to try to form a coalition how were they able to overcome those it was it kind of like a reclamation of those terms, the same way the vagina monologues, you know, reclaims, uh, you know, female sexuality and things of that nature. It was definitely 
Very similar, yeah. I was going to say it was definitely done in that spirit, um, similar to the reclaiming of words like queer today and, you know, beginning in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, however, they, their strategic reasoning, it, you could really can only understand it in the context of the, the nationalism and the revolutionary nationalism in particular, that the Black Panther Party um, was really very well known for, for pushing and um, in a very well-grounded, well-researched, well-studied way, um, the idea being that groups um, could organize their own, could organize amongst their own ethnic and, and racial groups that come together in a, in a revolutionary coalition um, moving towards internationalism, moving towards the idea of a, of a combined class struggle, but that for now, given the divisiveness of racism, um, these groups would organize separately. And so for the Patriots, um, who didn't necessarily relate to the, the very large, white, more middle-class student movement of the time. Um, they, they tried to stake a poll for themselves within that analysis of nationalism and internationalism by carving out um, a sort of radical white Southern identity. Um, and, and I think it's important to understand their choice of symbolism and language as also an attempt to ruffle a few feathers, particularly amongst the middle-class student leftists and liberals who thought it was so shocking that, that these poor white radicals would do this. Um, you know, and it's also important to understand it was only the patriots who adopted that, um, and not even all of the patriots agreed about the use of the symbol. I want to remind listeners are in tune to KUCI in Irvine. We are speaking with the authors of Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels, and Black Power, uh, a uh, book about community organizing in radical times, community organizing that uh, was certainly surprising in the way it was able to cross uh, racial divides. What were some of the other groups that uh, were similar to the Young Patriots at the time? But both the October 4th organization, the work out of uh, working-class neighborhoods in Philadelphia, uh, Kensington and Fishtown most notably, and White Lightning that organized the white areas of the Bronx. Uh, both organizations were very unique. They weren't carbon copies of the Patriots or Rising Up Angry, but certainly were very inspired by their Chicago counterparts. And um, what about, uh, what to explain Rising Up Angry? Rising Up Angry was uh, was a was a group that also had roots in Jobs or Income Now Community Union. They started off organizing uh, greasers. So imagine uh, John Travolta's character, uh, Jimmy, in Greece, only with a big red star and a free Huey button. And they went on to uh, really evolve and to em embrace uh, organizing around the needs of working class women and supporting dissident GIs. When you were researching these different organizations, what was most surprising to you? What kinds of issues um, that you didn't expect to discover came about? What kind of obstacles did they face that, that you found most surprising? Amy, why don't you take that one? Sure. Um, I think that even though I, I came to this history sort of looking for examples of um, poor and, and working-class whites who were really engaged in, in the civil rights, black power, feminist movements. I was surprised by the, the wisdom and the experience 
experience among leaders like Peggy Terry, who uh, worked with Jobs or Income Now, who had been politicized by some of her personal experiences in the South, but really put those personal experiences into politics after coming, moving north and getting involved with the Congress of Racial Equality. Um, and the experience, the wisdom, the the real the real natural way of organizing people that, that already existed in these neighborhoods even before groups like Students for a Democratic Society or the Black Panthers showed up to do the organizing work. Um, that kind of seed, that kind of um, existence really gave me a lot of hope for, for the type of work we can do today that, that we can't write entire communities off as many student organizers did with poor communities um, during the 1960s and 70s, that there is good work and good, you know, progressive potential that has always been there or can be cultivated there and, and that the real, the answer, the surprise is actually in, so what happens if we put our effort and energy into it? What happens if we, you know, sit down at our kitchen tables and have radical conversations? What happens if we engage people in creating a newsletter and authoring, as Joint Community Union did, a welfare recipient's bill of rights? that really empowered, you know, women who were on welfare at the time to, you know, understand the rules of welfare and begin organizing around the issues that were impacting their day-to-day lives. Um, those types of, of things were not only surprising but inspiring. James, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think what was surprising and somewhat disappointing is that up until this point, uh, this history had been so buried and that, uh, you know, because when you bury history like this, that it buries people's understanding of what's possible today, the alliances that could be built. I think that our book has a lot of clues and tools on how to make this occupation moment uh, into a long-lasting movement because it chronicles people that really took alliance building and trust building amongst uh, communities that were expected to be at each other's throats very seriously. And so I guess that the surprise wasn't so much the stories that we uncovered, but that historians, uh, both movement historians and mainstream historians, had um, really ignored and minimized this for so long. Why do you suppose that is? I mean, it, it, it seems like such a... Uh important story to tell. I mean, I'll just jump in and say this This is all new to me. And uh, James, I think you know, in my civil disobedience class, I show, uh, I think we've talked about, the, I show the Weather Underground documentary uh, every uh, every semester when we, you know, question, you know, firm commitment to nonviolence versus armed struggle. And there's a scene in that film, and I don't know if you are both I know, James, you're familiar with it, but I don't know how much you, how well you remember it. But there's a scene where they're showing the Black Panthers, and they're all lined up, and they're all raising their fists. And there's one white guy in the middle of this whole line. And my students are always asking, what's up with the white guy? And I always just have to kind of, you know, fumble and say, well, you know, there were some, some whites who were down with the cause. And it, it just seems like a story that would have naturally been told as part of the history of the Black Panthers and and the Black Power movement, um, why hasn't why do you suppose no one has has told this story? Was it that it was you know statistically the numbers were insignificant, or is it just are people uncomfortable? Perhaps I don't want to say giving whites credit, but suggesting that there were coalitions when history likes to portray it as something. That was only about race rather than class. I mean, 
what what gives? I guess is the way with the question I'm trying to ask. Well, we should both answer this one because we have uh, very very different but uh, complementary takes on this one. I think class contempt quite a bit. You know, I think that uh, I think that the, that our left movements, our progressive movements, still grapple with uh, with the issue of class. I think people get it intellectually, but however, when it comes down to actually rolling up your sleeves and um, and being inclusive in a movement, I think that's all, uh, that's a completely different thing. It's the difference between uh, doing for or doing with. I think that a lot a lot of parts of our movement get the doing for and the representing uh, when it comes comes down to doing with that's where 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 we fall down and I think that's reflected in the way that people re- remember history uh, but it's also important to remember that uh, just like breakfast programs and literacy programs and sickle cell anemia programs that the Black Panther Party for self-defense pushed and um, and built in their communities this is also the re- also a very important part of that project, and it flies right in the face of the stereotype that the only thing the Panthers were about were violence and guns and off-the-pig rhetoric, but it was actually a whole model of serving the people and survival, survival pending revolution. And the fact that Fred Hampton Jr. actively uh, directed uh, the Chicago Black Panther Party to make alliances across color lines and worked with um, amazing amazing organizers like Bob Lee, uh, the field secretary of the Panthers, tells a different story that doesn't just undermine our understanding of poor whites, but also of what the Black Panther Party uh, was largely about. Amy? Yeah, I actually I do agree with most of what what James has said about it. I think that um, left movements and and even sympathetic academics and we do a terrible job of talking about class and understanding the the history of racialized capitalism and and the intersections of of class, race, and gender. Um, and and there are many many you know scholars who who attempt to grapple with these things. But I, I think the the hidden and ignored part of this history is is of the casualties of that, um, and this book is a, a chance to rectify it and and really take another stab at, at looking at a way that you can grapple with those things at the same time as these groups tried to do. Um, I do think statistically their their numbers may you know be smaller than the broader anti-war effort and the student movement of the time, though their numbers were in the many hundreds um, in in terms of who they reached and core members, um, many thousands, if you think about how many people they turned out for their, you know, stop the war but support our sailors type of, you know, GI support efforts. Um, and but, but far smaller than the broader student left at the time, um, looking at SDS as an example. Um, but I, I think less, you know, or more than the than the numbers is that that this is difficult history to write and talk about. And as James mentioned, in the process of writing this book, there was a lot of trust building that needed to happen. Um, I think amongst those we interviewed, um, including folks like Peggy Terry, whose daughter was just a wonderful resource for us um, in access to Peggy's files. There was still there was an impulse not to take attention um, away from the important work of civil rights, black power, um, brown power leaders of the time by by really 
propping up their own efforts, but there was also um, many, many people who really did feel this story needed to be told. It just needed to be uncovered in a in a way that um, respected their stories, and, and that took time, and it took trust building, and it took, you know, connections and a lot of work um, to get that going, and our hope is that now um, this will open the gateway to, to more of this history to be called. We're talking about new book, Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels, and Black Power. Give us a call at 949-824-5824, 949-UCI-KUCI. Show your support for this kind of hidden history that we bring to you each and every week, actually each and every day on our public affairs programming, and uh, support KUCI. We're speaking with the authors, Amy Sony and James Tracy. You know, we just you know, opened up so many avenues for discussion, but it it really does seem that uh, people are very content to speak of the civil rights movement in terms of race. But when it comes to class, you know, now you're getting too close to the capitalist structure. I mean, people forget, um, you know, maybe the second theme of Martin Luther King's organizing, you know, toward the end of his life, you know, supporting the, uh, the garbage collectors and tackling poverty, not to mention the war in Vietnam. And it seems that uh, people are quite content to talk about civil rights if it's talking about race. But when you begin to talk about class, uh, it begins to get dangerous. And, and again, I mean, as I think, James, you, you pointed out, people forget that uh, the Black Panther movement was really about the breakfasts and the community organizing and things of that nature. And I think it's telling that uh, it wasn't two academics in history departments at universities writing this history, but two activists themselves who know the importance about uh, the uh, interconnection between race and class and the need for coalition building. So that's certainly one of the strengths of the uh, the book. Let's move forward. Um, explain what's meant by the organize your own model of action. Where does that come from and uh, how did it how did it work? Well, the organize your own mandate, which came out of the black power movement, was simply asking each racial or ethnic group to organize their own, to reach their own, to move them in a progressive uh, direction in separate organizations, but come together in coalitions, in, in alliances, um, as exemplified by the original Rainbow Coalition, which was the Young Patriots, uh, Black Panther Party, and the Puerto Rican uh, young, young Lords. It came out of a very very long uh, conversation where black leaders uh, as, very, as diverse as Ella Baker and, and Bayard Rustin were going to white activists and thanking them for their, um, for their time in the South, for doing the voter registration drives uh, and things like that, nature, and then uh, but saying, well, we're now racist reaction, racist violence, uh, racist uh, racist political action at the ballot box is you know coming from your community, and we we really need to deploy you in uh, in these in these neighborhoods, so we actually have a chance chance of winning. We oftentimes think of the Black Power mandate, uh, you know, strictly around about 1966 when Stokely Carmichael uh, announced that uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee were expelling whites uh, from work in the South. But that was actually after a, um, 
a, you know, at least a four-year, if not more, process around um, asking white actors to um, take responsibility for um, for what was going on in in white communities, and um, was really only kind of the explosion of you know of frustration, but also a very strategic move uh, on the part of the black black power movement. Mimi, uh, yeah, I think the thing um, that is important about it is, is that it was really a call in many ways um, for expanding the movement. Um, that's how I understand it. That's not a direct quote, of course. Um, Stokely Carmichael is, is best known for making that call in 1966. And, you know, many things were said, and you can read many of Stokely's speeches online and, and in books. And um, it was... It was a, a suggestion um, that to some people was unclear and to other people was misguided and to other people made complete sense. Um, but, the, but the general idea and the, the wisdom of it, I think, is, you know, the way to expand this is for us each to not go somewhere else to organize other people who we've never met before, but to turn to the people next to you and begin, begin talking to them about this. And for white folks in particular to, to organize where racism lives um, where it manifests, where it cultivates, where it originates, which is in white communities, um, both poor, middle class, and upper class, um, and groups that already existed, like Join Community Union, really became some of the, the few or the only organizations in the country that were organizing majority white communities around the, the twin and maybe trifecta of race, class, and gender um, in 1966. And so JOIN actually ended up receiving a fair number of um, young white organizers um, or you know, soon-to-be organizers who were interested in going south or had been in the south who were now looking for ways to put this into practice. Um, it created a bit of a tipping point inside of JOIN in terms of the balance of outside middle-class organizers and local community folks, but it also brought some, some new energy and, and, you know, and real leadership to JOIN, um, including many of the community residents like Mary Hockenberry, who was organizing at the time and organized in Uptown you know, for a good 60 years um, up until recently, and Peggy Terry, who, who were proud that JOIN was a place that was really putting this goal into practice. Um, and, and the same can be said then of the, the ways that the Young Patriots, October 4th organization, Rising Up Angry and White Lightning, put this into practice. So then it was important for each group to organize their own so as to not have any one group, uh, any one particular person or demographic speaking or representing uh, a, a, a different demographic with different backgrounds. So it was an easier way for you know different groups to be able to come together because they're working within themselves but then between groups? It was really, I think, a way to to reach more people um, and to do the work, um, you know. I think it was so, for instance, if you look at the Occupy movement now, there's all these critiques about um, how it doesn't have any demands. Well, how did demands get formed? By people coming together. Um, and at the time, um, you know, what, what good does it make for people from the North or, or white students all to be coming to the South, helping black folks figure out their demands. Black folks can figure out their demands for themselves. What are the, the demands and the points of solidarity then 
among white folks about the, the goals of this movement, which, as you mentioned, even for Martin Luther King, for the Black Panthers, were always about both racial justice and economic justice. Well, let's talk about that, because it, it seems that uh, a central theme of the book, and I must confess, I'm still working my way through it, but um, it, it seems that a central theme is that uh, poverty can certainly be a powerful catalyst to spark uh, whether we want to call it a progressive agenda or a revolutionary movement that can unite very different people. And I think we are seeing that uh, in the uh, Occupy movement. Um, am I correct in, in suggesting that that's one of the central themes? And uh, if so, could the timing of the release of the book not have been more perfect? Absolutely perfect. I wish we I wish we could claim that we uh, that we had planned it out like that all along, but we haven't. Uh, we did, didn't cause the Occupy Everything movement, but it was it's been an honor to be able to watch this unfold as we're on on book tour. Uh, yes, uh, poverty can certainly be one of the, you know one of the many things that can uh, you know that can anchor this movement and build these type of alliances. It's it's not the only thing because uh, you can have right wing. Uh, movements of the poor as well. You can have reactionary ones, but these were uh, these were ones that were built around a very specific uh, set of politics around, uh, as Peggy Terry said, the common cause was freedom, and that's what also sets them apart from what's traditionally known as identity politics, is while people were organized around their own communities' needs and their own identities as Southerners, as Blacks, as, as Latinos. They also were, you know, responsive and responsible for building a, com- you know, a common platform, and that's uh, that's something that I think they can really be brought in into contemporary times, you know. And but uh, yes, you know, we have we, we live in a in an era right now where we have have so many new poor people, right? And the the trick for, for success for this movement for social justice today is somehow to uh, build a team, uh, build a team of people who are brand new to poverty and brand new to economic precariousness with people who have always lived at the bottom of the well. With, uh, and that's that's going to be a very tricky process because it means navigating um, uh, people's assumptions, people's privileges, and, uh, you know, in... And you know the very question of who you know who is to lead. We're really inspired by uh, Willie Baptist, a lifelong uh, lifelong anti-poverty activist, uh, a former Black Panther who just wrote a book on the subject called uh, "Pedagogy of the Poor." We had the honor of appearing with him in in New York. I think that uh, you know he and his co-authors really take this. Uh, What do you want listeners to uh, to get out of the book? We've only got a few minutes left, uh, and I want to thank. Uh, we've got uh, a number of calls already. I want to thank Cynthia, who called in uh, and uh, made a pledge to KUCI. She'll be getting a copy of Hillbilly Nationalist. Josh, as well, called in, and he will be getting a copy of Hillbilly Nationalist. So, uh, thank you both. Um, what would you like listeners to to get out of this book? What, uh, if you can speak directly to the listeners, as you are, uh, what would you hope they take away when putting putting down the book? I think for me, it's it's three simple things. We can't know where we're going um, or what we need unless we know where we've been. So, studying history is important. Second, 
I hope this book uh, really challenges some of the classism that undergirds stereotypes of poor whites as as rednecks, as as more racist, um, as the sort of staunch defenders of conservative politics. Um, historically, that's not actually true, um, and there are these moments that show us that. Um, and and second, that that or third, that moving politics, um, moving coalitions, building them takes work, um, even if people's, you know, progressive sort of insights are there. I hope that this inspires um, the kinds of coalitions and conversations about coalitions that address racism, that address economic justice, that address sexism and homophobia um, in the ways that those things have historically broken up movements. Um, and so I just, I really hope that the book inspires more conversation. James? Absolutely. I, I really can't add add much. I just hope it or you know it inspires people to organize and to seek out unusual alliances, and to really put the time in to uh, to build those alliances, even when they seem the most impossible and uh, you know the most unlikely. And I think you both touched on this a little bit, but uh, how has the book been received? Are people receptive to? Um, the telling of this story um, without stepping on the toes of the you know, major contributions of African-Americans during the civil rights movement? It's been wonderful. Um, every event on our book tour so far has been incredible um, and, a, and a real inspiration. And um, we've gotten really almost nothing but positive feedback, um, even positive in the sense that it recognizes some of the book's limits about the book, um, and which just tells me I think people are hungry for this history. Uh, we expected a few curmudgeons out on the road and, and really haven't met them, but we welcome them to, to grapple with us and have a dialogue. James? Absolutely. I mean, this this book, you know, from its very inception wouldn't have been possible without the support of the radical black and Latino communities that give us, you know, the gave us support from the very beginning and the uh, white working class folks who uh, built, you know, built a lot of, a lot of the history. You know, I think that they realized that uh, the original rainbow coalitions showed a way forward for, uh, for survival and that, and, you know, maybe actually winning. And I think that, that uh, these, these communities recognize the importance of this history, and uh, you know, and shared shared with us, uh, you know, on that on that basis is that it's not it wasn't a theoretical debate. It was basically a question of how do we survive and how do we win, and um, you know, so we've had nothing but wonderful reception all across all across the country, as people are you know for the very first time you know in you know at least ten years we have an actual sense of optimism where questions of race and class aren't being defined by the right anymore, right? That's where the occupations movement have really given us back our optimism and, uh, you know, in our, our sense that change that, you know, is, is actually possible. And I think people are responding to this book as, you know, maybe being a tool to put into their, their toolbox as we, we grapple with today's, uh, today's challenges. The book is Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels, uh, Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels, and Black Power Community Organizing in Radical Times. It's a great book. It's got uh, at least 20 pages of uh, illustrations, photographs, and it is written in a very uh, narrative and non-academic-y uh, 
uh, tone. It is really wonderful. I know you guys have been working on this for about 10 years, so it must uh, feel great to have it out there. And uh, congratulations on it. Where can listeners turn for more information about the book? Thank you for all your compliments, Jarrett. Um, and people can go to www.sunnyandtracybook.com. And Sunny is and spelled S O N N I E? Yes, it is. And Tracy, T R A C Y. Yes. Okay, so say, tell us again. It is www.sunnyandtracybook.com. And it is uh, a terrific read. You can get yourself uh, a copy by uh, pledging to KUCI, 949-824-5824. James, it's good to have you back. I think you were on about nine years ago. And uh, you know you have uh, always been a mentor to me. And Amy, it is so nice to meet you. Good luck with the book. And uh, I look forward forward to finishing it. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Talk to you soon. Take care. And uh, do give us a call. It's 949-824-5824, 949-UCI-KUCI. Give us a call during this fun drive and let us know that this hidden history of the civil rights movement is something that you are passionate about. The book is Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels, and Black Power. Great, great read. An important book. Give us a call. 949-824-5824. Back in a minute. 